So if you turn to 13, verse 44, we'll go ahead and read through the end. Now the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now you recall where we were over the course of the last several weeks. We are studying Paul's first great missionary journey. Uh, he and his companions, Barnabas in particular, but also John Mark, started off from the church in Antioch, in Syria. They traveled down the coast to a place called Seleucia, took a boat over to the Isle of Cyprus, and evangelized the Isle of Cyprus. Then they traveled back up to the continent. They passed through quickly through the region of Pamphylia. We're not exactly sure why they did that. We know that they were interested in coming back and preaching the gospel there because on a later occasion they did so. But initially, at least, they pressed on through Pamphylia. And at one point, uh, John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. We speculated as to why that was. The only thing we know for certain is that Paul did not like it. And they pressed on to higher territory and they came to the city of Antioch. And it was there that they entered the synagogue. Paul was their practice. It was natural that Paul would seek out some sort of point of contact with the community as he began to preach the gospel. And the logical place to go, of course, was the synagogue for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was because there were that was a place where people at least had an interest in spiritual matters. At least you had people who were acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. And so that was a good point of contact. The other reason, and Paul makes that very clear in the section that we have before us today, is that he felt obligated to preach the gospel first and foremost to the Jews. Uh, Jesus had come first to his own people. The gospel was not going to be contained only within Judaism not restricted only to the Jews. Jesus made it very clear his was a kingdom that was going to advance through the whole earth. He'd come to be the savior of the world. But nevertheless, the gospel had to be proclaimed first to the Jews as God's chosen people. And then from them, the gospel would expand out into other territories. So for those two reasons, Paul went into the synagogue and he preached the gospel. And we said last week how he did this was interesting. He went in to the synagogue the service there was very similar in some respects to an Anglican service of worship. There was always a reading from the law and there was a reading from the prophets. Those two great sections of the Old Testament. And then at the end of that, it was permissible for someone to stand up and give an extemporaneous explanation or exposition of the scriptures. And that's exactly what Paul did. Paul and Barnabas stood up. Paul appears to have been the primary speaker, but what he does is he records the great acts of God. We said that Paul's sermon there in the city of Antioch was remarkably similar to the one that Stephen gave on an earlier occasion that ultimately led to his martyrdom. It wasn't really filled so much with theology as it was simply a record, a recounting of the great acts of God in the Old Testament. And what Paul wanted to show was that God had been active over the course of the centuries, but God's primary act his greatest act. Everything was really a prelude. Everything was a build-up to the great act, and that was the coming of great David's greater son, the Messiah, the person of Jesus Christ. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, had been promised, and Paul says, we are here to proclaim that he has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're told that when Paul finished on that particular occasion, there was great enthusiasm there in the congregation. I described it last week, I said that it was every preacher's dream and every preacher's night, wife's nightmare. 
Uh, we're told that when they finished, the people followed them home. Uh, I said, that's every preacher's dream, that when he finishes and he climbs out of the pulpit, the people are shouting, more, more. Most of the time, they're just looking at their watches. But every now and then, they'll say, we'd like to hear more about this. Well, that's exactly what happened here. They said, we would like to hear more about this. And they invited them back the next Sabbath. Proclaim again what they had heard on this first Sabbath. Now, what happened over the course of the week? Well, presumably, Paul, staying there in the city of Antioch, and Barnabas shared the gospel with people on a less formal basis, a more informal basis. Perhaps they even canvassed the area. We don't know. But evidently, they shared the gospel, and they began to explain these things in fuller detail. And you know how it is. It's not long before the word gets out. There's this new message, there are these new folks in town, and we're told that when the next Sabbath arrived, and that's where we pick up today, in Acts chapter 13, verse 44, we're told the next Sabbath, look at this, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So the whole city has now gathered. Now, does that mean every man, woman, and child? Probably not, but it just means a large contingent, a large portion of the city gathered. And the first thing that I want you to notice is what they gathered to hear. What does the text say? It says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. There are lots of things that can attract people. Lots of things that can attract people to a church. Um, you might think to yourself, well, maybe the people came out, Jews and Gentiles alike, because they were curious. Now, we live in an age in which we are surfeited with information. We have newspapers. Of course, newspapers seem to be a dying breed. Most of us were raised on newspapers. You always got the morning newspaper. You had the evening news. You know, John Chancellor or somebody like that would appear on the evening news. But today, those things seem to be dying away. But we have more information than ever before. We live in the information age. We've got information about everything. We don't have a great deal of wisdom today. But we certainly have a great deal of information. And a lot of that's due to the internet. You can find out anything, and you can find it out instantaneously. Well, remember, in the first century, there were no such things. There was no nightly newscast. There was no newspaper. There was certainly no internet. So how did people get the news? Well, when people came from other places to your community, that's where they got the news. And people were keenly interested in what was going on in other places because most of them rarely traveled very far from the place where they were born. There was no means of transportation in those days except by animal transport or by walking. And so most people never traveled very far from where they were born. What the Apostle Paul and Barnabas did, what Paul in particular and his companions later on did, is really quite remarkable to travel these great distances. Most people did not particularly overland, they did not travel great distances. And so when somebody new came into the community, oh my goodness, they were just astonished by that. And they wanted to hear whatever these strangers had to say. We're going to see later on in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul goes to the great metropolis of Athens. We're told that the Athenians were keen to hear what he had to say because the Athenians, I love the way Luke describes it, sat around and talked about nothing but the latest fads. That's how the Athenians were described. They were keenly interested in everything that was going on in other places. And of course, part of that was because Athens was this great intellectual center of the ancient world. We'll get to that several chapters on. But what we're told here was that people came out not because of curiosity. Now, I think they probably were curious about Paul. I think they probably were curious about Barnabas. But that's not what the text says. The text does not say they gathered because they were curious about these strangers from another part of the world. Now you might say, well, perhaps they came out because Paul gave a dramatic presentation. You know, it's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul says that when we came among you, he doesn't say that here, but elsewhere he says, when we came among you, we came in great weakness, not with eloquent words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So you might think, well, Paul wasn't really a very dramatic 
preacher at all. At least that's what Paul would lead us to believe, that he was not a particularly dramatic preacher. But I suspect, just given Paul's passionate nature, that he was probably a very captivating speaker. He was also a humble man, I think, in many respects. And so he probably said, oh, I'm not a great preacher. There are others that are greater than me. But look at Apollos. He's, he's a great preacher. I'm, I'm not that. But I don't doubt for one minute that when Paul preached, he preached passionately. You could just see the way that he writes his epistles. You could just see how he dealt with the situation with Stephen prior to his conversion. Paul was a passionate man, and if you're a passionate person, that comes out. And you might think, well, that's why the people gathered, because when Paul preached, it was like E.F. Hutton, my goodness, people listened. And you might think that that's what was happening here. But again, that's not what the text says, is it? The text does not say that the people gathered because they were curious, although they were. The text does not say they gathered because Paul was such a captivating speaker that people were entertained by him, although I'm sure he was. But the text says that the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. What is particularly interesting is that Luke emphasizes that. In fact, we're told that the word of the Lord was the focus, and we are told that four times. Look at verse 44. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, here it is again, verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. So there you have it again, the word of God. And when the Gentiles, this is verse 48, heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying what? The word of the Lord. And verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So you can see the emphasis here is on the word of the Lord. And I cannot emphasize to you how important that really is. I'm sorry, I'm having a little bit of technological difficulty. More than I imagined. There we go. So what we see here is that there is an emphasis on the word, on the preaching of the word. And I think that is so important because so much of what passes for preaching in churches today is anything but the word of the Lord. And this is one of the things we have to be very careful about in our media age, in a culture that is obsessed with being entertained, and in a culture where people are interested in seeing the dramatic, and they will come out to be a witness to it. You know, I'm not all that impressed by what people call megachurches these days. I'm not doubting that some of the megachurches certainly preach the gospel. But sometimes, just because a church has lots of people does not necessarily mean that it's doing the work of the Lord. And, and if you think, well, that's not really fair, take a look at the ministry of Jesus for a moment. We're told that when Jesus started off in his ministry in Galilee, he had huge crowds following him, didn't he? On one occasion, we're told that he fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fish. Now, that was amazing. And, and furthermore, we're told that was just the man. I didn't even include the women and the children, presumably. So there may have been more than 5,000. And on one occasion, the disciples came up to Jesus and they said, listen, you've got to go to Jerusalem and do the works that you're doing up here in Galilee, because my goodness, if you go down to Jerusalem, you're going to be a hit. And Jesus made it very clear, no, it was not his time to go to Jerusalem. He said, you can go to Jerusalem if you want, but I am not called to go to Jerusalem. At least not yet. My time has not yet come. Now, what was it that the people were coming out to see? Well, Jesus makes it very clear, at least with the feeding of the 5,000, because a little bit later on in John's Gospel, and by the way, a little bit of trivia, the one miracle that Jesus performed that is recorded in all four of the Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. So that, that made a big impression on people. And you can understand why they were living in an agrarian culture. There was no Piggly Wiggly, no Publix, no Harris Teeter to go and buy your groceries. People who lived in an agrarian culture, particularly in the first century, who did not have modern forms of irrigation, lived a very tenuous life. If there was any kind of blight that came upon your crops, if there was any kind of a drought or a flood or anything like that, a whole community could disappear overnight. And here was a man who could take five loaves of bread, two small fish, and feed 5,000 people, and the people were enthralled. 
We're told in John's version of this story that after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus received word that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And so he crossed over to the other side of the lake. And the people were not satisfied. When they found out that he'd gone over to the other side of the lake, what did they do? They chased him around to the other side. They were waiting for him when he got there. And what did Jesus say to them? He didn't say, oh, well, good for you to follow me over. My goodness, that was quite a trek for you fellows. What he says is this. He says, you are seeking me because you were fed with the fish and the loaves. But do not seek that bread which does not endure, but strive for that which does endure. And then he went on to say this. He said, I am the bread of heaven. I am the one that has come down. Whoever eats of this bread will never be hungry. Whoever drinks of what I give him will never thirst. And a little bit later, in what is known as the Bread of Life Discourse, we're told that the people took offense at Jesus. What's interesting is it says many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. They said, this is a hard saying. <coughs> Who can receive it? So they were coming out for the miracles, you see. And as long as the miracles were going on, oh my goodness, they were following Jesus wherever he went. But when he really began to tell them that the message was more important than the miracles, and that they shouldn't focus on the miraculous, and that they shouldn't be concerned only with their physical needs, filling their bellies, but they should be concerned with their souls, which happened to be starving, then we're told they took offense and they turned and they followed him no more. And by the time you get to Judea, by the time you get to Jerusalem and the crucifixion, those huge crowds of 5,000 have suddenly dissipated, and what do you have left? About 120 is what we're told. It's good to show you the fickle nature of human beings, doesn't it? A dream one minute, a nightmare the next. And so those crowds have dissipated. So when you see these huge churches that are just magnificent and all sorts of things are happening, and you think to yourself, well, they must be doing the work of the Lord, that is not necessarily the case. The gospel can be faithfully preached in a church week in and week out, and you may get 120 people show up. A boy put on a rock concert, and you'll fill a coliseum. Now, which one has greater significance for your soul and for your life? Well, obviously, the word of the Lord. But you see, if you're living in an entertainment culture, that's what people want. They want to be entertained. So don't necessarily be impressed by large churches. Now, some of them, of course, are preaching the gospel, and sometimes the Holy Spirit comes upon the people, and great things happen, but that is not necessarily the case in Jesus' ministry as a case in point. So I think we just need to be aware of that. And I think that's particularly true living in the age in which we're living. People take great offense at the gospel message. And we'll come to that in a little bit as well. So I think you need to be aware of the fact that so much of what passes for preaching today is just not the case. There was a church outside of Charlotte when I was the rector at St. David's <laughs> in Chiral. Uh, maybe some of you know what the church is, um, but it was a huge church. It almost looked like a cathedral. It was non-denominational as far as I know, but it was Pepto-Bismol pink. <laughs> and you know the church that I'm talking about? Some of you do know that church. Maybe you went there. You're not going to like what I'm about to say. But nevertheless, this huge church, it was Pepto-Bismol pink. <laughs> and there was a sign outside that said, we used to ride by it, and we were on our way to the shopping mall or something like that, just getting out of Toronto and going someplace else. And, and it said, you have never seen a church like this before, inside or out. Well, that was certainly true. I've never seen anything as awful as that. But it said, you've never seen a church like this, inside or out. Come visit and then it said on the bottom, and free Starbucks coffees. <laughs> Inside the sanctuary. Yeah. Now, that, you have to understand, that was about 20 years ago. Pretty impressive. Free Starbucks coffee in church. Now, see, what they were winning them with was something novel, <laughs> unique, different, and free Starbucks coffee. Now, don't get me wrong, I think having coffee here is a great thing. We've got the best coffee bar, by the way, anywhere in the city of Charleston on Sunday morning. But there is a sense in which what you win them with is what you oftentimes win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. And what's so impressive here in the book of Acts, in this latter part of that chapter 13, is that the thing that brought the people out was the word of the Lord. 
word of the Lord. It needs to be that way for us, my friends. If it's us, we're the ones that are attractive. If we're the ones that are dynamic, and don't get me wrong, I don't think that when sermons are preached or lessons are taught that we should do it in such a way that people do not find that we believe it or they're not captivated. But the point is, whatever we're doing, however we're doing it, we need to make sure that what we're proclaiming is the word of the Lord because the scripture says the grass withers and the flower fades, but it is the word of the Lord that stands forever. And so much of what passes for preaching in many churches today, and I know this for a fact, is anything but the word of the Lord. Sometimes it's just the word of the preacher, isn't it? Sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes they take their text from the Bible and then proceed to preach from the New York Times. <coughs> Other times what they do is they say, well, I've got a word from the Lord, and they close their Bible, and then they tell you what they think God has spoken to them. <coughs> that is not what Paul and Barnabas did, and we know that because Luke emphasizes over and over and over again, there is the word of the Lord. Now, what happened? Uh, when they came back the next week to hear the word of the Lord, when the whole city gathered, well, we're told that there was a division. There was a division. I'll read this in verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So we immediately see that there was a division. Uh, and the division resulted because of the Jews. Now, why were the Jews angry at Paul? Because these were the same people that the week before had done what? Well, they had invited Paul and Barnabas to come back and speak more about these things. So why, all of a sudden, when they show up at the synagogue on this particular day, did they suddenly turn on Paul so quickly, so dramatically? Well, part of it probably had to do with the fact that over the course of the week, Paul began to explain the gospel more fully to people. And perhaps he began to explain to them that they could not be saved by works of the law. And, of course, for Jews in the first century, the law was everything. The Torah was everything. And when Paul begins to explain to them that you're not saved by your works, in fact, the only function of the law, and he makes this very clear in Romans, the only purpose of the law, really, until you're converted, is to convict you of sin. Now, after you're converted, is to tell you how to live as a holy person. But up to that point, the whole purpose of the law is not to prevent you from sinning. It is to convict you of the fact that you already have. Isn't that what happened with Moses? Moses went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments, and he came down, and the first commandment said, You shall have no other gods before me. And when he gets to the bottom of the hill, what does he discover the people doing? Worshipping the golden calf. Now, he can at that point give them the Ten Commandments, but it's not going to prevent them from sinning. It's not going to prevent them from doing what they shouldn't do. They'd already done it. They'd already broken the first commandment. So when Moses gives them the law, the only thing it does is what? Convict them. If you're a parent, you know how this works. Normally, you don't go up to your child and say, thou shalt not hit thy sister unless they already have. <laughs> Isn't that right? You're telling them not to do that because they've already done it. Thou shalt not pick thy nose. You're only telling them that because they've already done it. And that's what the law does. It convicts you of sin and the need for righteousness. Now, if Paul preached that message, and presumably he did, because we understand that it becomes a huge bone of contention, just a little bit later in this same book, when Paul goes back and has the first church council. When Paul begins to preach that, you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus Christ. You can imagine that many of the Jews would have taken great offense at that. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Paul. We are God's chosen people. What are you talking about? You don't have to keep the law in order to become a Christian. What do you mean that you don't have to go through the rite of circumcision in order to become a believer in Jesus Christ? Paul, I've got a problem with that. So that may have been part of the problem. But the text is pretty clear as to what the real problem was. The real problem was not that Paul seemed to be preaching against the law, although that would become an issue for other people. And it certainly was a charge that was brought against Jesus, wasn't it? That this man is no friend of the law, that this man trying to undermine 
the law. He breaks the Sabbath by healing people on it. And that was a charge that was brought against Jesus, and it's a charge that will be brought against Paul over the course of the book of Acts. In fact, Paul will ultimately be arrested toward the end of this book and carried off into captivity and imprisoned for almost three years in Caesarea Maritima. Those of you who are going to the Holy Land with me, we leave on Saturday and Sunday. It's going to be one of our first stops. First stop on our first day of touring, we're going to Caesarea Maritima, where Paul was kept and imprisoned and had to stand trial before two Roman governors and King Agrippa before he appealed to Caesar and went off to Rome. And he was there why? Well, because he was accused of breaking the law, undermining the law of taking Gentiles into the temple precincts, which was punishable by death. But that's not what the problem was here, evidently. The problem here was something far more base, but far more insidious. What was the problem here? But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They're filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. They were jealous. My goodness, services were held there every week, week in and week out. The law was read, the prophets were read, somebody stood up and gave an explanation of what the, the law and the prophets were all about, and these Gentiles, you get a few of them that would show up, and all of a sudden, these two people who come from off, show up, preach a word, and the next thing you know, the whole city's there, including these Gentiles. Now, there was no problem with Gentiles coming and sitting in the back of the synagogue and listening. We said they're called God-fearers. But Paul was telling them that they could come, come to the synagogue, and not sit in the back. They could move up to the front, and they could become followers of the Jewish Messiah, and they did not have to become Jews in order to do it. And these people were angry and filled with jealousy, and they turned on Paul. Well, what was Paul's response to this? Well, verse 46, they did not shrink back. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God, there's the emphasis again, we're not speaking to you our opinions, this is the word of God, and it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside, that's very strong language, ladies and gentlemen. Paul doesn't say, since you don't understand it, or you're struggling with this, Paul says you have thrust it aside. You have thrust it aside and judge yourselves, listen to this, unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. There he quotes from their own scriptures, and he makes it very clear this was part of God's plan all along. If you walk into the narthex of St. Philip's Church, there is a magnificent painting that hangs just above the door as you enter into the nave. And you know what it is. It's the Nunc Dimittis. It's the story of Jesus when he was a baby, Mary and Joseph, taking him up to the temple for the dedication. And there was an old man there by the name of Simeon. And he sees the child, and the Holy Spirit speaks to his spirit. And we're told that he went up and he took the Christ child in his arms. And he said what? Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which you have prepared to be a light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So in the very earliest days, it was made very clear that Jesus came not just to be the Savior of the Jews, but to be the Savior of the world, and that included Gentiles. And that's what Paul is saying here. You thrust it aside. But that doesn't mean that the word of God is going to be bound simply because we had to bring it to you first. Jesus came to that which was his own and his own received him not. We had to bring it to you because God has been acting in and through you. But understand, the word of God is not constrained. It is not restricted. And if you will not receive it, if you don't want it, we will take it to those who do. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. One part of the congregation did not want the word. They rejected it. It's not that they didn't understand it. Paul makes it very clear. They thrust it aside. The idea is that they threw it out into the trash, down on the ground, to be trampled underfoot. 
Others took that which was rejected, saw it as a treasure, and began rejoicing and glorifying what? The word of the Lord again. Here's that expression. Not Paul's, Paul's words or Barnabas' words, but the word of the Lord. And then we have this marvelous passage, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Turn to the Gentiles. This is God's work, not Paul's. Now, let me come back to this whole cliffhanger that I left you with last week, because it's very important. You would think for a moment that having done everything that he could possibly do to find that his own people rejected him, to find that these people had turned on him so quickly that Paul would have been discouraged, but he wasn't. Indeed, we're told that in spite of the rejection by some of these people, others did receive the message of eternal life. And Luke makes it very clear. He says, the word of the Lord was spreading. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And we said this is the exact opposite of what we would expect. We would have expected the text to read, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. But that is not <coughs> what Acts says. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What is Luke telling us there? Luke is telling us that when the word of the Lord is proclaimed, it is not the work of the preacher. It's not even the work of the word itself that converts a heart. It is the means, but it is not the thing itself that converts a person. What converts a person? Well, what converts is the Holy Spirit, that's right. He is the one who ultimately converts a person. And why is the Holy Spirit the one who must do the work? Because the Holy Spirit is the Lord. What do we say in the creed? The giver of life. It's the Holy Spirit who is the Lord and the giver of life. If you want to understand more about the Holy Spirit, you'll have to come on Pentecost. I'm going to preach on the person and work of the Holy Spirit on June 4th. But we have to understand it is the Holy Spirit who brings life. And what Luke is reminding us here is of something that I think many people have forgotten. And that is, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I are dead. Now, sometimes you'll hear people talking about being sin-sick and sorrow-worn. But I'm here to tell you that the scripture describes us spiritually, not as sick. Why? Because as long as you're sick, there is the possibility of recovery. Albeit slim, <coughs> there is the chance of recovery. Even if a person is near death, hanging on by a thread, as long as there's a pulse, as long as there's a brainwave, there is the possibility, be it ever so slight, of recovery. But when a person is dead, what hope is there? The only hope when a person is dead is for God to do something supernatural and raise them from the dead. That's why the disciples were so discouraged, so downcast in the wake of Good Friday, when Jesus' lifeless and limp body was taken down from the tree and laid in the borrowed tomb, everything that they had left him, or left behind to follow him, now seemed like foolishness. They'd left their families, presumably, at least for a time. They had left their homes, they had left their nets, and now he was gone. They had left all these things to follow him, and he was dead. And that's why they were so discouraged. And the only thing that would restore their joy is what? If God raised his son from the dead. Well, the same thing was true with Lazarus, wasn't it? Mary and Martha stood outside the tomb. His body had been in there for several days, starting to decompose. And they cried out, oh, Lazarus, come back out. But he never came out, no matter how hard they cried. We're told the Jews had come from Jerusalem to comfort the sisters in the loss of their brother. But what? As much as the people weeped and wailed, nobody came out. Jairus' daughter, when he arrived with Jesus, having gone to him and said, my little girl is sick, by the time they get there, we're told a messenger had met them on the way and said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Why? Because your daughter is dead. And when he got there, he saw all these people wailing and moaning and making much ado. See, when there's death, the situation is hopeless apart from something supernatural by God. And we understand that. We recognize that. 
Are you aware of the fact that the Bible says what was true of those people physically is true of us spiritually? We may be physically alive, walking around, but spiritually speaking, in terms of our relationship with God, folks, we're not just sick, we're dead. And the only way that a dead person can respond to any message, the gospel or any other message, is if God comes and does what he did for Lazarus, and he did what he did for Jesus, and that is he makes us alive. He made them physically alive, he's got to make us spiritually alive. You say, well, this is very interesting, but where do you get this? Well, you've got to go to the word of the Lord. Who cares about the word of Jeff Miller? That doesn't matter, but the word of the Lord matters. So, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll give you a clear example of this. I think it's one of the clearest examples in all of Scripture. This is Paul writing to the Ephesian church, reminding them of what they once were until Christ came in. Now, you all know Ephesians chapter 2, many of you do, because it's this great text. You are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast, right? Justification by grace through faith, Martin Luther called it the doctrine of the standing church. Great. And we all cling to that. But what is grace? We've talked about grace in here before. What is grace? Write it down. Write it down. It is God's undeserved, unearned favor. That's what grace is. God's undeserved, unearned favor. Why does Paul say we are saved by grace through faith and not by works? Because, he says, we're dead. And dead people can't do anything for themselves. When was the last time you ever saw a dead man play badminton? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says two things about us there. Number one, he says, while we may be physically alive, as far as our relationship with God is concerned, we're spiritually dead. Which means that if we're ever going to have a relationship with God and we're dead, not just sick, what has to happen? God's got to make you alive. You can stand there and preach the gospel till the cows come home. I've always felt bad for one person in particular in the Bible, lots of them, but one person in particular, Ezekiel. Remember the prophet Ezekiel? He was given the weirdest job ever given to a preacher. He was led out, we're told by a vision, into a valley filled with dry bones. And the text says, and lo, they were very dry. They were bleached. And the Lord said to him, and now a man preached to the bones. Every preacher, at one point or another in his ministry, has felt just like Ezekiel. I'm just preaching to dry bones. And he preached to the dry bones. And what happened? Well, we're told that the bones came together, bone to bone. They were covered with flesh and muscle and sinew. He said, wow. But the text says something else. It says, but they were not alive. They were not alive. So the Lord said, now preach to the wind. And what's interesting, and this is, we're going to talk about this on Pentecost. I'll use this very illustration, as a matter of fact. The word that is translated as wind in Hebrew, the Greek word, the Hebrew word is ruach. Sounds like you're clearing your throat. Ruach is a word that can be translated as wind, breath, or spirit. And so when he says preach, about the wind, he's saying preach about the Spirit of God. And we're told that as he did, preach to the bones that were not alive about the Spirit of God, we're told that a great wind came and filled that valley, and listen to this, filled those slain, and they became a living host. So Paul says, we are spiritually dead. 
And we can preach, people can preach to us, but unless that holy and life-giving spirit comes and fills us and makes us alive, we cannot respond to the message. That's how Paul describes us. And he says, because we are dead, we're not just dead, he says, we are children of what? How does he describe it here? Children of wrath. Now that is totally different from what most people hear these days. We are taught to believe that we are all children of God. How many have ever heard that? Well, aren't we all children of God? It's a very nice idea, but it's just not a particularly biblical idea. The Bible is very clear. We are not all children of God simply by virtue of the fact that we are members of the human race. We are all creatures of God, true. We are all made in the image of God, true. But we only become children of God, how? By adoption. Well, you can't adopt somebody if they're dead. So what does Paul say happens to us? He says we are dead, we're under judgment, but look at verse 4. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we're spiritually dead. We can't respond to the gospel. And because we can't respond to the gospel, we are under the judgment of God, the wrath of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, didn't leave us in that perilous situation. He did what? He made us alive again. That's what he says. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. And that's why it says, by grace you have been saved. And look at verse 6. It's this language of resurrection. And raised us up. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. It's grace because you can't earn it. You contribute nothing to it. And you contribute nothing to it. Why? Because you're dead. But God made you alive. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, which tells us that grace leads to faith, not the other way around. You're saved by grace through faith, not faith leads to grace. God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive, and having made you alive, gave you ability to hear the word of the gospel, and faith became a gift. Paul says, in case you don't get it, let me make it very clear to you one last time. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. You know, you ask many people, if there's, let me just give you a picture here. Let's say you die and you stand before the Lord, and he asks you the question, why are you here and your neighbor is not? I don't want to see a show of hands because this is the wrong answer. But you ask many people that question. Why are you here and your neighbor is not? Somebody's going to want to say, well, I guess because I received the message of the gospel and my neighbor didn't. Now, the minute we say, I received, that implies that what? I did something. And when you say I in the presence of Almighty God, you have just robbed him of a little bit of his glory. You have just robbed him of a little bit of his glory. Yes, Lord, you did most of it. Jesus did 99.9%. But, but I did a little bit. I believed. Ah, but you see, the person who says, I am here only because of the grace and mercy of God. Nothing in my hand I bring, as the hymn says. Simply to the cross I cling, you see. That's the person that can say, not to God be the glory, but soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Now, this is the doctrine of election. This is what we call predestination and so forth. And some people might say, oh, well, I don't know about that. That's a Presbyterian doctrine. You know, and, uh, you know, the Presbyterians who believe that everything's preordained, they fall down the stairs and break their arm, and when they get to the bottom, they say, well, thank God that's over. I mean, that's, that's what we think. Oh, it's 
I want you to understand that this is not a Presbyterian doctrine. Now, don't get me wrong, the Presbyterians believe in it, but it's an Anglican doctrine. If you don't believe me, turn to page 871 in the Book of Common Prayer sometime. The longest of the 39 articles deals with predestination and election. And let me just read it to you, what it says. It says, predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby, before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel, secret to us, to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. And then he goes on to say, as the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. The article makes it very clear, God has chosen before the foundations of the earth to save some. And when you realize that, you realize that this is a doctrine for all pure, sweet, and unspeakable comfort. Now, some people say, well, I don't know. Then why do we even evangelize? How many of you are wondering at that at this point? Well, what's the point of evangelizing? If God's going to save them, he's going to save them anyway, right? Well, not necessarily so. It is true that if God is going to save them, he's going to save them, because nothing can thwart God's purposes. But it is not true to say that God is going to save them anyway. The same God who appoints the end appoints the means. And the means by which he calls his elect is by our witness in the preaching of the word. It's interesting to note that the greatest evangelists in the history of the church have been what we call Calvinists. Because they realize that their job is to simply throw out the word. Throw it out like water. And trust what? The Holy Spirit to turn it into wine. He's the one who saves. Boy, that is a huge burden off of you and me. If we had to go out and preach the gospel and know that it's up to us to persuade someone, I could never stand before you again. If I knew that your salvation, your eternal destiny, was contingent on my ability to proclaim the gospel with my finite mind. Somebody asked me a question this past Sunday school about, please explain to me the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, my goodness. If I have to explain the doctrine of the Trinity to you in order for you to be saved, you're sunk. And I'd never be able to do it. But if I know that my job is to simply throw out the word and God will call those whom he has decided by his grace and his mercy to make alive, well, my goodness, I can do that with confidence knowing that the word of the Lord will never come back, what, void or empty. Now, sometimes people say, well, I don't know, but what, that makes me feel uncomfortable about all these people who haven't heard, and my goodness, and why did God choose some and not others? We don't know the answer to those questions. Paul makes that very clear. Read through Romans chapter 9 through 11 sometime. Paul makes it very clear we don't know. But on the other hand, it's, it's a comfort, too. First of all, let me say this to you. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, that doesn't mean that God's very fair. I want you to understand something about God. Nobody in this world gets injustice. We're so concerned about justice these days. Right to justice. What is justice? Justice, simply defined, is getting what you deserve. Now, the scripture is very clear. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Okay, so um, what do you all deserve? Death. What do I deserve? Death. All right. So if God were to let us all perish in our sin and be children of wrath for all eternity, would any of us get injustice? We'd get what? What we deserve. So if God decided to save one, would there be mercy? Yes. The fact that he saves many shows there is great mercy. And furthermore, I would go so far as to say, now some of you are saying, well, I'm just uncomfortable with this, I don't like this. We're uncomfortable about this only when it has to pertain to our lives. Let me tell you, when it has to pertain to the life of your children or your grandchildren, God elect them all the way. Do what you've got to do. How many of you have loved ones who are not believers? 
You do, don't you? We all have somebody in our family, in our circle of friends. They may be churched, they may be confirmed, they may be baptized, but they're not really believers. And you know they're believers because there's fruit in their life. You'll know the tree by their fruit, Jesus says. We all know there are people. How many of you, when you pray for your children, say, Lord, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what you have to do. Bring them into a saving relationship with you. How many of you have ever prayed that about your children or your grandma? I don't care what you have to do, Lord. I, I don't care if you have to knock them on their can, whatever it takes. Well, what about their free will, folks? Oh, I don't want free will for them. They, they, they wouldn't be able to handle it if I gave it to them. I want God to save them. Well, this is what Paul is saying. This is what Luke is saying. Now, you might say, well, who are the elect and who are not the elect? We don't know the answer to that. The thief on the cross. This is why Paul says, make your calling and election sure. The thief on the cross was elect, but nobody knew it until the last moment. Jesus turned to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's why, even though here in Acts chapter 13, though the people rejected Paul, and even though we're told that they drove them out of the region, we're told that what? Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Listen, you read a passage like this, and what you want to do is you want to fall on your knees, and you realize God didn't choose me because I'm a good person. I was dead. There's nothing that I contributed to this. He made me alive even when I was dead in my trespasses and in my sins. To God alone be the glory. That's what it's all about, my friends. It's not about us. It's really not about our salvation. It's about His glory. We were placed here. We were placed here for one purpose only, and that is to bring glory to God. And our job as Christian people is to simply share the gospel. God will take care of making alive those who hear it. Because otherwise, it's just preaching to dry bones. We see here that the word of the Lord spreads. It spreads throughout the whole region. Which brings us, and we don't have time to go into it today, because we only have six minutes left, to a tale of three cities. Paul will leave the city of Antioch, and he will go on to Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe. And I'm just going to give you a little foretaste of this, because we're not going to pick up here until we get to September. But we are already beginning to see a pattern in Paul's preaching. And this pattern is going to be borne out particularly through the rest of the book of Acts, but particularly in these three cities. And here's the pattern that you see happening. Paul goes into a community, and the first thing that he does is what? Well, he finds a point of contact, whether it's a synagogue, in the case of other places, um, in Athens, for example, he went up to Mars Hill and so forth. But Paul finds a point of contact, and the first thing he does is he preaches the word of the Lord. Now, that's the first thing he always does. He preaches the word of the Lord. What's the next thing in the pattern? There is division in the community. There's always division between those who accept the word and those who reject the word. Why is that? Because the word is like light. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And wherever the light goes, divides, doesn't it? It divides the night from the day. That's what light does. And it causes the creatures of the night to scatter. Somebody's trying, what do most robberies take place at night? Under the cover of darkness. And what do you do? You turn on the lights. And the creatures of the night scatter. So you see that wherever Paul went, he preached the gospel, and then there was division in the community between those who accepted it and those who rejected it. You see that here in the city of Antioch. You're going to see it in Iconium and Lystra and Derby. those Galatian cities as well. So there's division. There's division between those who accept it and those who reject it. On the part of those who accept it, what do you have? Enthusiasm, joy. The word of the Lord takes root in their hearts and it begins to produce fruit. And on the part of those who reject it, what do you get? A persecution, jealousy and persecution of the messengers. 
This is what happens everywhere Paul preached the gospel. I would go so far as to say it happened everywhere that Jesus preached the gospel. And it's going to happen everywhere you and I preach the gospel. We're going to go in. We've got a message that the world needs to hear. But some people are going to thrust it aside. But other people are going to accept it. Now, what's, what's the percentage? I don't know. Sometimes it depends upon the people. Sometimes it depends upon the place. Sometimes it depends upon the season. What it ultimately depends upon is what God the Holy Spirit is doing. But there will be division. Rest assured. And on the part of those who accept the gospel, there will be growth and there will be fruit. Because the word of the Lord never comes back void. But I guarantee you, those who reject the gospel are going to stir up trouble against you. They're going to stir up trouble against you. Do not go out thinking that being a Christian is easy. Jesus made it very clear. He said, if you're going to be one of my disciples, you've got to take up your cross and you've got to follow me. The Lord told a parable on one occasion, and I'll close with this, and then if there are any questions, I'll let you answer. I'll try to answer any questions that you may have. But Jesus told a parable on one occasion. It's called the parable of the sower. At least that's what the New Testament calls it. Although... The emphasis isn't so much on the sower as it is on the seed, the soil. You know the story Jesus said, there was a man who went out and he sowed seed. And he said some of that seed fell on the hard path. And the birds came and snatched it up and took it away before it even had a chance to take root. Other seed fell, he said, on rocky soil. It sprung up quickly. But because it didn't have great depth, great root, the sun came out and scorched it, it withered and it died. He said some of the seed fell on good soil, but as it sprung up, it was choked out by the thorns and the weeds and the thistles, and its life was strained. He said, but other seed fell on good soil, and it took root, and it produced fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. He said, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, what's interesting about that is, you know, sometimes Jesus' parables are a little hard to understand. <laughs> that one's not. Because the disciples came back and said, what is that all about? And Jesus explained it to them. And he basically says that the seed is the word of God. The sower is the person sharing the good news. And the soils are the different types of people's hearts that it falls on. Some people's hearts are hard. They are calloused. The Greek word is scleros, from which we get scleroderma, a hardness of the skin. Some people's hearts are hard. And when the word is proclaimed, it just glances off. And the birds of the air, the devil comes and snatches it away. Listen, we're living in a time in which people can't say, I've never heard the word of the Lord. Listen, you can hear the word of the Lord on the radio, on television, churches on every corner. Sometimes it just glances off. Sometimes it falls down and you, you, they're enthusiastic and you, 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 you think there's life there. You know, somebody shows up on Easter and it just so happens that the, the choir is in tune and, and the flowers are gorgeous and the preacher just happens to hit a bass hit this week. And they're like, I, I believe. But then life settles in. You know how that is. Difficulty comes. <laughs> Things aren't all what you dreamed it to be. You suddenly discover that the church is not filled with people who are perfect. And all of a sudden, you don't see them anymore. Oh, they're there for a few weeks. Then they miss a week. Oh, then they're back for two weeks. Must have been visiting somebody. And then they disappear for a month. Then they're back for Easter. And then they're gone and you don't see them again. You run into them in the grocery store and they're trying to hide because they feel guilty. And you don't see the light, you see. Others hear the word. They take the word. It begins to show some signs of life. But the cares and the occupations of this life, the desire for vainglory, the desire for wealth and for success and for popularity inevitably strangle out the life. Only a quarter of the time, Jesus says, at least in that parable, only a quarter of the time does the gospel actually fall on fertile soil and produce fruit. 
I want to leave you with two questions today. Is your life bearing fruit for Jesus Christ? And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. It means that you are going out and being a disciple maker. There's nothing that brings glory to God more than bringing other people into the kingdom of God. So I want to know, are you producing fruit? The fruit, Jesus says, that lasts. Good works that bring glory to God. I'm not asking you, are you a, a respectable citizen? Every person in this room is a respectable citizen. I'm not asking you, are you law-abiding? Presumably most of you are. I'm asking the question, are you doing those works that do not simply receive the praise of men, but glorify your Father in heaven? That's the question. Are you doing that? that? That's the first question. The second question is this, if you're not, or if you're not sure, do you want to be sure? And if you do, the first thing you need to admit is, I am a sinner and I'm dead. I'm dead in my trespasses and in my sins and I cannot save myself. The world may think I'm a good person, but most of us, ladies and gentlemen, wear a mask. The Greek word for hypocrite is pokritos. It means to wear a mask. And most of us are wearing a mask of civility and respectability. But down beneath, we are nothing but sinners. And if everybody really knew what God knows, the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, the one from whom no secrets are hid, we wouldn't be so respectable anymore. If you're willing to acknowledge that, to admit that, to admit that you're dead in your trespasses and in your sins, and this message is resonating in your heart, that means God, the Holy Spirit, is working on you. He's raising you to new life. And the question is, are you going to respond to that? Are you going to respond to that message? You can by admitting that you're a sinner, inviting Jesus Christ to come in and be your Savior, and you will begin to produce the fruit that lasts. It may only be a little bit at first, 30, 60, you say, I would like to be a hundredfold, God will prune you. Because that's what you do, isn't it? That's what you do to produce more fruit. You prune, and God will prune you. But the point is, you will produce fruit for eternal life. Never be afraid to share the gospel. Never worry about what the response is going to be. Your job is to be faithful. God takes care of being successful. So until we meet again in September, be fruitful. Be fruitful people. Wherever you are, be fruitful for the Lord. Okay, two questions, and then we're going to wrap it up. In the back, first, Martha. Well, I didn't say, I said it's not the preacher or the word alone. Okay, because I was just going to say, you know, like, what about that scripture for the word of the Lord is living and acting sharper than any two-edged sword? Well, it would be a contradiction of what I've just said, that it is right. the word of the Lord. It's not the word alone. Okay. Because a person's dead, they can't hear the word. Right, okay. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. You have to wait till we get to that in the book of Acts in order to get the answer to that. Short answer, Paul did not do it because it was necessary for salvation. Paul did it because Timothy would not even get a hearing in a Jewish synagogue. That's the reason. So it was one of those things that was necessary in order to be able to evangelize. All right, let's close with a word of prayer, and then we'll send you off be fruitful over the course of the summer. Let us pray. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bring before your throne of grace all those who are heavy on our hearts. We pray for John Thornhill, Lord. We pray that 
In your mercy, you would just touch him with your healing power, that he would be restored in mind and body and in spirit. And Lord Jesus, we know that you had to go away, that the person of the Holy Spirit might come, one who brings not just physical life and wholeness, but spiritual life and wholeness. Because none of us lives forever on this planet, but we will live either in eternity with you or eternity separated from you. So Lord, we pray that you would just give us a fresh wind of your Holy Spirit, that it would sweep through this community, through this parish, through this room, that you would make us a fearless people, raise us who are dead in our trespasses and in our sins to the new life of grace, empower us, fill us, use us, that you might receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise, for we ask it in Jesus' name.